Welcome to The Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Really excited for the message today. We're continuing through the book of Revelation. Um, Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 4. We looked, um, a window was open for us and we saw into the heavenly throne room in Revelation 4. We saw God sitting on his throne. Do you remember that constantly throughout that chapter you see this mentioning of throne, 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 throne. Because the focus there, very intently by John, he intentionally places throne there because he wants to communicate to us the reality that he who sits on the throne is powerful and has authority. Then we have the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the Holy Spirit is there as well. So we see this glorious picture opening. This sermon today is an extension of that. It's part two of that. And part two is my favorite part. I actually like it better than part one. And you'll see why throughout the sermon. So before we jump into the message and before we spend some time in God's word, let's have a quick word of prayer. Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much that we can be in this place this morning, Father, that we can open the word and that we can do so with freedom. But Father, we know that at the same time that whilst there is freedom in this place, Lord, sometimes we choose bondage. Father, sometimes we come to this place and we don't feel free. And Father, we may be distracted by many things, Lord, that we cannot receive from you the things that you would desire us to have. Lord, a lot of time we think of persecution and we think of it in physical means, but Father, there is spiritual bondage and spiritual chains that restrict the freedom of your word going forward. And Father, today I pray in the name of Jesus that those things may be halted, that they may be stopped, and that your face may be seen, and that we may be free. The hose in whom the sun sets free shall be free indeed. pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And I want you to open the scriptures with me to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to spend our study this morning in Revelation chapter 5. Um, and when we get there, say amen. I like hearing a few amens, so that's good. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. In the ancient culture, there were, it's commonly known that when a special or a significant document passed from one hand to another, it would be sealed up. Now, the reason for the sealing of a document was that so nobody who was unqualified or do, didn't have certain authority they could not unravel and peek at what that document was intended for. Maybe it was classified or confidential. So it was sealed from the common eye. And it's interesting that in Roman culture, seals were often, I mean, documents were often sealed with more than one seal. When we come to the book of Revelation, we see that there's a scroll, we see that there's a roll, and it's sealed seven times. In Roman law, documents often were sealed seven times. So what we find John is borrowing a lot of the imagery of his day and communicating it through his message. And as we read this passage here, I want you to see the scroll and who is worthy to open the scroll, because I can tell you something. You don't open someone else's mail. And this scroll is somebody's mail. And only somebody who is worthy and qualified can open this mail. 
Let's have a look in verse 1. I'm going to read the scriptures right here. Verse 1 through the end of verse 7. The scriptures read this. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures... And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Pretty interesting picture, isn't it? We see this picture into heaven and the picture in heaven is communicating to us that he who sits on the throne has all authority and all power. It doesn't say that it is God who is sitting on the throne, but we know that it is. The focus for John isn't he who sits on the throne, but it's the throne itself and he's so glorious, so high and lifted up, so powerful and so wonderful that he can't even describe him in words. He just merely sits on a throne. And he has something in his right hand, and this thing in his right hand is so important that John, in viewing this, it was so real to him that nobody can come and take this scroll from the hand of he who sits on the throne, and he weeps because of the significance of what is in the Father's hand. But then one comes forward. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David and he's the lamb as though he had been slain. And it seems as if he is worthy and he is worthy to take the scroll. Who is worthy? Well, I can tell you something right here in this whole entire chamber in heaven. The angels can't do it. The living creatures can't do it. The 24 elders can't even do it. And they have power, they have position, and they have authority. And even God in all of his glory will not open this scroll. So when I think of the worthiness of he who is able to open this scroll, it's not dependent upon position. It's not dependent upon power. It's entirely dependent upon victory. Victory. The angels haven't been victorious for us. There is only one who has been victorious for humanity, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And he is the tribe of Judah, the lion. He is the root. He is the lamb as though he has been slain, and he is fully qualified to take this scroll. You know, I'm a, I'm a football fan I go for the Parramatta Eels. That's a good thing for you or a bad thing for you. Most of you, it's a bad thing. For some people, it's, what is he talking about football for? Uh, You'll see very shortly. I've been going for them ever since I can remember the last time that they won one of these, which is a premiership ring, which means you win the grand final. You have all your pre-season training. You train throughout the year and you play throughout the year the best team at the end of the year wins this trophy and they get a ring 
and then they do it all again the next year. Isn't it just really interesting? It's so pointless, but I still like it. And the thing with football and the thing with Parramatta, they often choke and they often suck. But they're my team because when your team is your team, it's your team and you go through it, go for them thick and thin. They haven't won one of these for longer than what I've been alive. So it just shows you something. And this is the thing, guys. When Parramatta wins this year, the premiership, and when they get their ring, they will walk up onto the stage. They will come up onto the stage, and when they walk up on the stage, they will all get a ring. And they'll get their ring and they'll hold their ring because they have been victorious on the day. They have won the trophy or whatever it is. They get the accolades, etc., etc. The CEO doesn't get one of those rings. The members who support the team don't get those rings because they haven't played the game that day. For the Olympics, think about it like this for the Olympics. The person who receives the gold medal is the athlete. It's not the coach. So in this picture in heaven, although this is not a perfect illustration, there is a scroll and nobody else can open this scroll but he who has won the victory. And that is Jesus himself. And he hasn't just won the victory, he's won it well. His worthiness is dependent upon his identification. This is what makes him worthy. Number one, he's the lion. Turn with me, keep your finger in Revelation chapter 5. They're borrowing the language here from Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49 verses 8 to 10. Turn with me in your scriptures to the book of Genesis. Jacob, the patriarch, is blessing his children. And one of his children that he's blessing at the end of his life, his name is Judah. And look at the blessing that Jacob or Israel gives to Judah in verse 8. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is, a, this, is a, this is a prophecy of who would come through the tribe of Judah, which is Jesus himself. When you think of a lion church, you think of the king of all beasts, glorious, wonderful animal. Now, you wouldn't want one of those animals running at you, would you? I, I tell Rosie quite regularly, we have a cat and I said, if Paddy was big enough, he would eat us. She proceeds to say, no, he wouldn't. He loves us. He's a cat. I don't think you can ever tame a cat. A cat is a cat. You may think that your cat loves you, but it loves the food that you bring. And that's the only reason it hangs around. I'm sorry, but that's the reality. If one of those things was running at me, do you know what I would do? I would run. Because it's a king. It's the king of the jungle, so to speak, and Jesus is referred to as the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what makes him worthy. He is a king. 
a king with strength, a king with power, a king with omnipotence. Omnipotence is all power. You have complete power. You have complete authority. Now, when we think of power, church, we think of it in a worldly understanding. We think of power in terms of conquest. We think of power in terms of domination. And while God will destroy at the end, he will remove sin and sinners and it will be done and he will do that. Power isn't always seen that way. And I want to ask you a question here this morning. And the question is this. What is harder to do? To conquer your enemies or surrender to your enemies? What's harder? I mean, is it harder to conquer your enemies or to surrender? What takes more power? What takes more willpower? To surrender, especially if you have the means for conquest. Jesus comes to earth, so God becomes man. He lives amongst us. He dwells amongst us. And Jesus allows himself to be betrayed into the hands of men. Can he stop it? He can call for how many legions of angels? Twelve. He has the means for conquest... But does he use it? He submits that is a greater display of power, I believe, than if he came down and he used the sword. Power isn't always seen in conquest. Jesus shows his power through surrender. That's why it says in Revelation, when the the lamb as though it had been slain, it says that he has prevailed. He has overcome. He has gained the victory. I find, I find the book of Narnia quite interesting. I haven't watched the movie or anything. I find bits interesting in it. But there is a theological point in it that I actually find really profound, actually. I don't really know much of the story, but there is a scene where they're talking about the king or they're talking about Jesus who is symbolized as a lion. And the inhabitants of the land, that they're talking about it and they're talking about how powerful he is and how frightening he is etc etc and some of the young people there the young girl i can't remember her name is lucy or something she's just like oh he sounds scary and they say no but he's good and this is the thing jesus isn't a tame lion he's a lion but he's not like a little kitty cat that we put on our lap and we pat he's a lion but he's a good lion He's good. He's very, very good. And Jesus identifies as a lion, but not just as a lion, he also identifies as a lamb. So this is the first thing that qualifies Jesus, gives him the worthiness to open the scroll. Number one, he's a lion. The second thing is that he's a root. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 and verse 2. We're going to read these scriptures here. Because John is intentionally establishing his point that Jesus is worthy based upon these three things. Number one, that he's the lion or the king. Number two, that he's the root or the Messiah. And those two things are very, very overlapped. That's why they're together. In verse one, it says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. In verse 10, it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic prophecies. And John is unashamedly, unequivocally establishing the reality that Jesus is he who we've waited for. He's come. He's the stem. He's the branch. He's the root. He's the long-expected promise. And he's come. And he's conquered. And he's victorious. You know what? I love it when I read the Gospels. And as I read through the Gospels, I love Jesus' favorite title for himself. Does anyone know what it is? Son of man. Son of man. Son of man. Son of man. I find that so interesting. That Jesus, who is the son of God, yes, identifies himself as the son of man. You want to know why he does that? Because he identifies with you. He identifies with us. Jesus, remember the passage where it says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There are some of the many texts where Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. And it's not just Jesus who identifies himself as the Son of Man. The apostles did in their teaching. Look at this. But this man, this man, is Jesus more than a man? Absolutely. But he's identified as man. I love this scene in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. We see this judgment scene. It says the throne is set. The ancient of days comes. The angels 10,000 times 10,000 minister before him. The court is seated and the books are opened. And then one like the son of man comes in the clouds. I just love that picture. Because if Jesus was son of man on earth, Jesus is son of man in heaven. If Jesus stood for the defenseless on earth and Jesus was stand for the defenseless in heaven, he represents you, he identifies with you, he knows what it's like to be broken, he knows what shame is like, he's experienced that. So if Jesus was the son of man here, then he's the son of man there, which means that you'll never be cast out. If he wasn't abandoned, if he didn't abandon you on the cross, then he won't abandon you now. This man, after he'd offered once sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did the Pharisees like Jesus? One of the reasons why they didn't like Jesus is because Jesus claimed to be God. And I tell you something, there are many people who would like to be God. There's actually many people on earth who think that they are God. They may not outwardly say that they are, but they live lives that revolve around themselves as if they are God. If someone wants to be God or someone tries to be God or someone tries to live their life as if they are God, it's because of one word, and the word is pride. A man wanting to be God is because of his pride, but God becoming man cannot be because of pride. It's infinite humiliation. And look at the Pharisees say about Jesus. They say, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man make yourself God. But they had it entirely wrong. It wasn't a man making himself God. It was God making himself man. 
and they missed the point. Instead of an act of pride, it was an act of humiliation and not just an act of temporary humiliation, church. It wasn't just for a moment. It's an eternal humiliation because Jesus is still the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is still the root of David. Jesus bears the garb of humanity, although glorified. For how long? For as long as time shall be. Is that huge? Does that communicate to you that Jesus certainly is more than worthy to take this scroll? 100%. Jesus isn't just the line. He isn't just the root. He's also the lamb. The lamb that is standing in the presence of the Father as though he has been slain. John 1.29, we all know it. Behold the Lamb of God that does what? Takes away the sins of the world. And I just find it so interesting that when we look at this picture, it opens up into heaven. We see Jesus coming forward as though he had been slain. So Jesus, we get this picture, he's coming forward with the scars, not wounds because they're not wounds anymore. He's coming forward to his father and he's got the scars on his brow where the crown of thorns was thrust. The holes in his hands and his feet where the nails pierced. And the hole in his side where that spear went up into. He bears these scars eternally. And he looks as though he has been slain because he has been slain. And he goes into the presence of his father, presenting his sufferings before him. But these wounds are healed. (laughs) They're healed for eternity, but he bears them for eternity. And that tells me something really beautiful about God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writing about Jesus and what Jesus has done. Look what he says. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Now, it's not man becoming God but God becoming man that just takes it to a whole nother level that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were what if Jesus bears those wounds or those scars sorry for eternity how long is your healing for (laughs) if Jesus has those wounds throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, it means that your healing is how long? It's an eternal healing. Is that good news? I mean, many of us, many people in the world, we look for a Band-Aid solution to our problems. I know if you are like me, when I was a kid, I fall over, I scrape my knee, There's a little bit of blood. And when I say a little bit, there's just a little bit. You have to squint your eyes to see and then imagine something to be there, to see some blood. But there's one thing that you want that will make it better as a kid. And what's that? A Band-Aid. And you put the Band-Aid on and the tears stop. And everything's fine. And it's even better if Elmo's on the Band-Aid. Parents, you know this. It's true, isn't it? But guess what happens with Band-Aids? They fall off. They're only a temporary fix. Isn't it interesting that the world will give you band-aids, but God gives you cures? 
So this world will say, oh, yes, your broken heart will focus on this and distract yourself on this for a period of time. You just keep going back to these empty wells time after time after time, and they just never satisfy. They're like Band-Aids. They hurt when you rip them off, and they fall off when you don't want them to come off. God gives you cures, and God's cures are eternal cures. Jesus bears those wounds, those scars throughout eternity to remind us that we are healed through his sacrifice. It's good news, church. Very good news. You know, um, I watched this movie recently. I'm not a movie guy. I don't really watch movies at all. And I'm not promoting any movies from the pulpit today. Don't get me wrong here. This is a movie by the name of Risen. And what it's doing is it's looking at the resurrection of Jesus from the perspective of a Roman soldier. It's actually really interesting, you know, because you read the Gospels and you see the perspective of Jews and followers of Jesus. But this is coming from the perspective of a Roman soldier. It's completely fictitious and it's embellished a lot, but the reality is still the same. For a Roman soldier who saw the resurrected of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, it would have transformed his life forever. And that's what it's coming from. This is a Roman soldier, a high-up general, who's overseeing the death of Jesus on the cross, and he sees Jesus die. He is then responsible for putting Jesus in the tomb, setting a seal on the tomb, and making sure no one steals the body because they expected someone to steal the body. We know the gospel account quite well. Sunday morning comes. The tomb is empty. So this Roman soldier, he goes to the scene and he inspects the scene. It's like a crime scene and he's looking at it and the ropes haven't been cut. They've been burst open. And the seal has melted. It's really interesting. So then Pilate puts him on the case of trying to find the disciples who have stolen the body. So he's following lead after lead after lead. It's actually really cool. And he's questioning disciples. He's questioning Mary Magdalene. It's completely embellished and fictitious. But here comes this scene, and it's so powerful. I actually started crying. Rosie doesn't know that. I started crying. I was trying to be tough, you know. I was like behind her, you know. They're following this lead up a street to where they think the disciples are. And this, this general, he's ahead of the soldiers, and he climbs up these stairs and he opens a door with his sword drawn and in the room there's 12 men and he's looking around the 12 men and then the, the, the camera suddenly stops and pans back to the middle because in the middle he sees Jesus and it just stops for him the record just because everything that he believed you've got to understand this everything that he believed was just thrown out the door He saw Jesus dead. He believed that Jesus' body was stolen, but now he sees Jesus alive. Would that change your life forever? And this is what challenged me, church. If I saw Jesus physically today, would I believe any more than what I now do? And would I be any more committed than what I now am? And sadly, the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes for all of us. It shouldn't be that way. Remember, Jesus says, blessed are those who have believed and not seen. Church, Jesus is alive. 
He ascended to heaven. He's in the very throne room of glory, and he's a sacrifice. And when they walk into the room, the, <laughs> Jesus says to the general, he says, come in, there's no enemies here. So this Roman general is just like sitting in this room, just like, and he's just watching, and Thomas comes running in. And, you know, he falls at Jesus. He says, he, you get to see Thomas putting the fingers in the side of Jesus. It's powerful. And he falls on and he says, my Lord, my God, you know. So it's from a completely different angle. It was so awesome. But you just imagine Jesus going into glory and presenting these wounds. Powerful stuff. I mean, the one in whom the angels adored in heaven now bears these wounds of humiliation, but at the same time, they're still wounds of beauty and glory. I think it's so cool. Jesus has a royal right to save, church, to the uttermost. The question I want to ask you right now is, in Revelation chapter 5, where is the Father sitting? Oh, what is the Father sitting on? He's sitting on his throne. Where is the scroll? Which hand? The right hand. Well, the right hand. In taking the scroll, where does that place Jesus? The right side of the Father. Do you know that this was the bedrock of the Apostles' message? This is just a few of the references. Look at this. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and saviour. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And I could give you at least another four texts that say the same thing. The emphasis for the apostles was that Jesus was at the right hand because the right hand was authority and power in the enthronement of Jesus. What's the significance of Jesus being at the right hand? I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey as we close. Look at this. Zyre of Ages, this is what it says. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's placed in a tomb, he rises, and when he eventually ascends to heaven, what we have just read in Revelation chapter 5 is spoken about just here. So cool. All are there eager to welcome the Redeemer, talking about the angels. They are eager to celebrate his triumph and to glorify their king, but he waves them back. He says, okay, guys, not yet. We still have one more thing I need to do. Not yet. He cannot now receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. He enters into the presence of his father. He points to his wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet, and lifts his hands bearing the print of nails, the lamb as though it had been slain. He approaches the father. The voice of God is heard proclaiming that justice is satisfied. I love this next bit. The father's arms encircle his son, and the word is given. Let all the angels of God do what? Worship him. Guess what happens next in Revelation chapter 5? Let's have a read. Revelation 5, starting in verse 8. If this is not worship, church, then I don't know what is. It says, now when he had taken the scroll, only when he takes the scroll, worship happens. 
The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed or purchased us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests of God. And we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. It's so cool. It's kind of like worship is growing. It's expanding outwards. The angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive seven things. Power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever then the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever now let me ask you a question is that worship I look at the book of Revelation, and that's probably the longest flow of true worship that I see in the whole entire book of Revelation. How long do you reckon that went for? I reckon it went for a while. And I don't even believe they scratched the surface of the worship there. We're talking about a new Sabbath school before. We worship when our heart is overwhelmed by all that God is. Have you ever had one of those experiences with God that you just can't worship him? Just, you just want to worship him and you just praise him, but you're still not even grasping what you want to say. When we see who God is, our heart is compelled to worship and they're compelled to worship and their compulsion to worship isn't forced, but it's given freely. And they, in their worship given, haven't even expressed the minutest feeling that they have in worship. It's still not enough. That the rest of eternity, full of the praises of God, wouldn't even scratch the surface for what he is and what he's done for them. This is who we're talking about here. It's huge. And they worship him. This is glorification. Jesus is enthroned. Jesus at the right hand. Now, when Jesus was at the right hand of the Father, this means that he has authority as a king to distribute gifts. What was the first gift that Jesus gave upon becoming king? Revelation 5 and verse 6, look what it says. And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the what? Earth. The seven spirits of God sent to the earth. When Jesus was enthroned, he gave one of heaven's greatest gifts to men, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in John chapter 7. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
John 15:26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify from me from the very throne room when Jesus sat on that throne room. When he sat in that throne, in the throne room, the very first thing that happened was the Holy Spirit gushed forth onto humanity. You know, when we think of Pentecost Church, we think of Acts chapter 2, and we think of the disciples in the upper room. That's the window there that we see. But if you opened a window into heaven, you would see this. Jesus coming, the angels glorying, and Jesus sitting on his throne, and the Holy Spirit gushing forward to humanity. Last verses I want to read today. In the book of Acts, I want to show you something really cool. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. Look at this. Acts 2 verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from where? From heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Whoa. Jesus sat on the throne. Do you think they knew it? Well, they were about to. Jesus was glorified. There was no shadow of a doubt about it. And Peter gets up and Peter preaches. And guess what he says in his sermon in verse 32, 33? This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out this which you now see in here (laughs) he's glorified he's enthroned church we we come and we worship and sometimes we worship as those who have been conquered instead of those who are conquerors We come and we worship, and sometimes we worship with an attitude of those who are victims instead of those who are victors in Jesus' name. When the disciples met in that upper room, when the Holy Spirit poured out upon them, they no longer perceived themselves as defeated men. They saw things as heaven saw it. God is on his throne. Jesus is at his right hand, and the resources of heaven are ours. Do we believe that today? 20 years' time, where will the congregation at Mwollumbar Seventh-day Adventist Church be? I want you to think about it. 90% of what we do as a church can continue on going the way it always has without the Holy Spirit. And in many churches, that's the case. Not so here. The line must be drawn in the sand where God's people come boldly before his throne and say, you know what? Enough is enough. The status quo is the status quo. Human wisdom is human wisdom, but that's not going to finish this game. We need you, Lord, more than what we realize We need to see you on your throne, but not just see you on your throne. Believe that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Instead of being the victims, we should be the victors. Instead of being those who are subject to conquest, we should be conquerors in Jesus' name. 
The church may be feeble, the church may be defective, and the church may be carpetless. But it is the object of God's supreme desire. And that which he has given in times past, he is more than willing to give to us today. When was the last time you asked for the fullness of the Spirit? When was the last time the church corporately Ask for the fullness of the Spirit. Because when I read my Bible, it says they were all with one accord in one place. At some point, the body of Christ needs to accept responsibility for its condition and say, you know what? We need to be changed. And Lord, make me willing to be willing to be changed. Look what it says in Acts of the Apostles. I lied. I got one more verse after this. Christ's ascension to heaven was the signal that his followers to receive the promised blessing. For this, that they were to wait before they entered upon their work when Christ passed within the heavenly gates. He was enthroned amidst the adoration of the angels. As soon as this ceremony was completed, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents and Christ was indeed glorified, even with the glory which he had with the Father from all eternity. The Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. And this is no Donald Trump inauguration. This is the king of all kings. And he still sits on his throne. And he forever sit on his throne. And he is forever worthy. And he's forever to be glorified. He purchases you for a purpose, church, individually. He doesn't just save you, but he saves you well. He doesn't just save you from sin, but he gives you privilege that would never have been yours. In Revelation 5 and verse 10, it says that he makes us priests and kings. It then says he receives strength, glory, honor, wisdom, seven things Christ receives to give. And he gives to us and he gives to us liberally. He's not selfish. He doesn't hold back. But he wants to give you the fullness of blessing that comes from the very throne in heaven. Jesus is on his throne. But did you know something? We're also there with him too. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, this is my last text, and I'm closing on this verse. It says, God has raised us up. What's that word? Together. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Don't tell me that you have no hope when Jesus is on his throne. Don't tell me that you have no strength when Jesus is enthroned. Don't tell me that you're struggling. Jesus is glorified. And he's more than willing to give good gifts to us than what an evil father is willing to give gifts to his children. We should act more as those who have conquered than those who have been defeated. Let's sing our final song. Before we pray, church, um, if you would like to receive the Holy Spirit, today, right now, the fullness of the Godhead bodily from the very throne room of grace, because Jesus is glorified and Jesus reigns, that as we pray, I would invite you to raise your hand to heaven. Now, this isn't Pentecostal, but this comes in the fullness of Pentecostal power. 
I think that sometimes we're a bit worried of what other people will think of us. But raising your hand, you're saying, yes, God, I want to receive more of you that I may reflect you to this world and that sinners may be one unto you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we raise our hands today. You see your church corporately in this place. Coming to you, Father. For so long, Father, we have esteemed ourselves to be the victims of conquest. But greater is he who is with us than he that is in this world. You sit at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, and the Father sits on his throne still. The honour of your throne is staked for the fulfilment of your word. We believe that. And today we come to you because we're told to come to you. And to ask for the precious gift that comes from the very presence of heaven, the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, Father, that we may be filled because we need it. Forgive us for seeking band-aid solutions as a church. We come up with programs and plans and strategies, but Father, it is nothing without the Spirit. Father, we are weak, we are miserable, we are destitute, we are naked, and we need a Savior. We need Him more. Breathe upon us, Lord, we plead. This time in earth's history, Father, wake us up, inspire us to service, and unite us, Father, as a body of believers who are faithful to your cause in your name. Do what we cannot do ourselves. Because of Jesus, we pray. any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABN Australia.org.au. That is radio at ABN Australia, all one word, dot org dot au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. Hello, my name is Lucas and today I'll be telling you an amazing fact. This amazing fact is called Sheep Farmer Endurance. In 1983, a 61-year-old sheep farmer named Cliff Young decided to participate in the world's toughest race. An 875-kilometer ultramarathon from Melbourne to Sydney in Australia. When the 150 world-class athletes gathered at the starting line, they were amused to see old Cliff Young enter the race wearing overalls with galoshes over his work boots. As soon as the race started, the pros quickly left Cliff shuffling behind. Spectators were hoping someone would stop the crazy old man before he hurt himself, but he kept pottling along. Normally, the contenders run about 18 hours and sleep 6 hours during the 7-day race. But no one told Cliff he was supposed to sleep. So while the other runners slept, he kept running, gaining on the pack a little more each day. By the last night, he passed all of the world-class athletes, 
By the last day, he was way in front of them. Incredibly, not only did Cliff run the Melbourne to Sydney race at age 61 without dying, he won first place. Breaking the race record by nine hours and becoming a national hero. When asked how he could run all night, Cliff said, See, I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses, and whenever the storms would roll in, I'd have to go out on foot and round up the sheep. We had 2,000 head, and sometimes I would have to run those sheep for two or three days, non-stop. Throughout the race, he just imagined that he was chasing sheep. When Cliff was awarded first prize of $10,000, he said he didn't know there was a prize and insisted they split it among the other lead runners. The nation fell in love with the 61-year-old vegetarian who came out of nowhere to defeat the world's best long-distance runners. Cliff Young, because of his upbringing, had incredible endurance. The Bible says we also must have endurance for the race that is set before us, but where do we get the strength and stamina we need? The Psalms tell us that God is he who gives strength and power to his people. And it is God who arms me with strength. The strength and endurance we need come only from him. I hope you enjoyed this story and the amazing fact. Taken from Amazing Facts, copyright 2017 by Amazing Facts, used with permission.
that was the Old Rocket Cross by Henry Higgins. And coming up next, have you heard about Jesus from Winds of Change?
It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.